Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hi everyone, it's Deb. And this is Beth. And we want to welcome you to episode number 36 of Dying to be Found. As always, we try to bring you episodes that you can relate to. So if you have a storyline you would like to hear, be sure to give us a shout out on social media or better yet, click on our Linktree link in our show notes. Speaking of which... We would like to give a shout out today for one of our listeners for filling out that storyline request and giving us an idea on what to talk about. Jenny, thanks so much. This one is for you today. Hi, Jenny. Thank you. Today, Beth and I will be talking about the unsolved case of Molly Bish. And Beth, I'm going to warn you ahead of time. This is a heartbreaker. Oh, dear. And I really hope that her family can get closure very, very soon. It looks like authorities are getting close, but Beth, we are still decades into Molly's abduction and murder. So hopefully we will find closure really, really soon. That's all I have to give you right now. We will certainly get into that in just a couple minutes. But before we do get started, is there anything that you want to add? Yes, Christmas. Christmas in, I was going to say Christmas in July, but it's October. Well, I send to a lot of my stamping friends and family and extended family. How many friends do you have? That's putting me to shame. Uh, I'm making nine masculine cards for Al's co-workers because they all deserve a card and a homemade rum cake. Oh, that sounds yummy. It is. (laughs) So I'm starting on making another craft. What kind of craft? Mm, Can't tell. Oh, okay. I guess I'm going to have to start thinking about Christmas because holy cow, it's it's a little too soon for me. I like to start thinking about that in December. That's too late. Everything's gone by then. I mean, Amazon.com, Beth, you should know me by now. That's true. I don't do Amazon. I still love going in the stores. Oh, that's just too much pressure on me. Well, maybe you can start up card making. Yeah, maybe. I'll add that to my list of things I never finish. (laughs) This podcast is about the only thing I have been following through with. Oh, good. I don't want to be here alone. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. I have a question for you. Shoot. Do you remember that pond that you and I used to go swimming at when we were kids? We used to go swimming in the summer and ice skating in the winter? Yes, But today, nobody swims there anymore. I just drove by it uh, about three weeks ago. It is all overgrown. The wild took over. Wow. Do people still go there just to picnic or anything? It doesn't look like it from my vantage point. Oh, that's sad. It's very sad. Well, I brought this up to you because I want you to envision back to when we were kids. Mm-hmm. I remember what it looked like when I was a kid. So I guess that's what we're going to have to do today is go along with those similarities. Sure. You might hear some similarities as to where Molly Bish went missing as we go along with this case. 
And I will go ahead and just say that Molly Bish was a 16-year-old girl who was abducted from her lifeguard job in Warren, Massachusetts. How could you be abducted as a lifeguard? She must not have been on duty. Well, I will tell you in just a little while, I think there might be a little bit of reasoning behind it. And as we progress, I'm sure you'll understand as I start describing the area that she was a lifeguard at. Okay. Or That's why I wanted you to think about where we used to go because it was that type of setting. It wasn't a pool. It was a public swimming area, but it wasn't a water park or anything like that. It was simply a swimming pond that anybody could go to. Okay. Molly was a 16-year-old girl who was abducted from that lifeguard job. And as we will find out later, Molly's remains were discovered not far from where she disappeared. The area that Molly was abducted from was almost identical to what you and I had gone swimming in, which we're going to come around full circle on that. But let me just give you a little bit of Molly's background. She was born Molly Ann Bish on August 2nd, 1983 to John and Maggie Bish. And when she was small, Molly's family encountered a crime in their own neighborhood while living in Detroit, Michigan, which prompted them to pack up the family and move to Warren, Massachusetts, with the hopes, Beth, of raising their kids in a safer environment. Oh, that is really sad right there. Yeah. After a little bit of digging, I discovered that the crime that drove the Bish family away was when one of their own neighbors was abducted when walking home from work and was later found murdered. Oh. Yeah. Well, to give you an example of the type of person that Molly was, I wanted to tell you about one time in 1993, Molly would have been somewhere around 10 years old. She had written a letter to a family of a little girl whose name was Holly Perinen, who had gone missing and was later murdered in Warren, Massachusetts, where they had ended up moving to. Although both Holly and Molly's cases were seven years apart, and similar in nature, neither of these cases could be connected to one another to pinpoint a suspect in Molly's abduction. Like any other teenager, Molly was excited about starting her first job as a lifeguard. On June 27th, 2000, Molly's mother, Maddie, dropped her off at Coleman's Park shortly before 10 a.m. to begin her eighth day on the job and to give swimming lessons. Let me get back to giving you the description of the area where Molly had worked as that lifeguard because you couldn't envision this a moment ago. Coman's Park was what looked like a very small lake which had a small beachfront. The pond itself was surrounded by trees, so the swimming area was very isolated and the tree line was very thick and it backed up all the way to the sand on the beach. So basically, Beth, you could be in the water, come up on the beach, which was probably 10 feet of sand, and then it directly went into a thick of woods right behind where Molly's lifeguard stand would be. Sure is in the wild. Mm -hmm. Secluded. Very secluded. In my opinion, anyone could easily lie in wait for an unsuspecting victim and then quickly drag them into the brush, never to be seen, you know? Yeah. When her first students of the day arrived, for their lesson, they noticed that several of Molly's belongings were there, but she was nowhere to be found. Well, that's a shame. Yeah. 
and only three hours after Molly disappeared, Maggie received a call from the police who broke the news that several people reported that there was no lifeguard at the pond. That would send the mom into panic. Oh yeah, how horrifying to get a call like that. Yes. Maggie went to the park and confirmed that Molly's water bottle, sandals, beach chair, towel, whistle, police radio, first aid kit, and a packed lunch were left on the beach. Mm. So that was around lunchtime, I suppose. Yeah, it's too bad she didn't have that whistle around her neck. Oh, yes. Never thought of that, but yeah, you're right. In the police radio. Mm-hmm. As they began their investigation, police originally assumed that Molly had either run away or skipped out on work to be with her friends because there was no sign of a struggle. Obviously, that's the first thing that police always think about, right? Yes. Divers were called in to sweep the pond. Search parties went out into the woods, but unfortunately, there was no sign of Molly. Well, that's nice that they at least acted on it really quick. Yeah, no downtime there. Absolutely. Well, let's rewind to the day before Molly went missing because this is really an important part of this case. When Maggie went to drop Molly off for her seventh day of work, she recalls seeing a white sedan parked by the pond and just had a gut feeling, Beth. She was very uncomfortable. Listen to your gut, folks. Absolutely. Pay attention to your surroundings. Oh, yes. And that's good because Maggie did that. And her feelings prompted her to follow Molly down to the beach to ensure that nothing would happen to her. When she returned to her car, the man was still there. Maggie made eye contact with this man, and the two of them had a stare down with each other, Beth. Could you imagine coming up to a parking lot, having somebody just sitting there lingering and staring at him for a minute or two? Gosh, I think I would have ran and got my daughter back and got her home. That's pretty ominous. Well, Maggie did continue to hang out in her car until the man finally drove away. So he broke eye contact and he was the one to take off. Thank goodness. I don't know. I would have reported it that day that there was a stranger lurking. It's hard to say. Yeah, that's true. I've come up on people just sitting in parking lots at, I don't know, grocery stores, Walmart, wherever. And I mean, I've never had the inkling to ever report them for anything. No, I think I mentioned having a man yelling at me, hello, 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 from his truck. No! Yes! When was this? Gee, about three to four weeks ago, and it scared the living crap out of me. Just three or four weeks ago? Yes, and it made me look around my surroundings for the rest of the day, and when I was walking into work, I was working 3 to 11, and walking back to my car, and when I said to him, what do you want? He says, nothing. I just want to say hi. And he was very far away from me. Thank goodness. Isn't that weird? That is weird and random. It is. Just sitting in a parking lot, wanting to say hi to passersby. Yeah. Okay. My gut said to park across from him because I was ready to pull in the spot beside him. It was just a funny feeling I had. And so you did? You parked across from him? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, Beth. Wow. No, you did not tell me about that. Holy cow. Mm. All right. The next day, which was the day that Molly disappeared, Maggie did not see that man again in the white car 
But later on, witnesses stated that they had seen that man in the same parking lot at Coleman's Pond and also at a nearby cemetery. That's creepy. Oh, yeah. Just sitting in a... Okay. I mean, I'm reading I'm reading way too much into this because I'm, I'm a little distraught with what you just told me about this guy saying hi to you oh. in a parking lot. The cemetery, by the way, was connected to the pond by a walking path through those woods I had told you about. I'm just thinking to myself, he could have easily have just parked in the cemetery and come up on that walking path and dragged her into those woods. Ah, very good. Park workers who were there to dump fresh sand on the beach had told police that they saw that same man in a white car in the parking lot only a few minutes before Maggie dropped Molly off for her 10 a.m. shift. And again, this was on June 26th, which was the day before Molly went missing. Mm -hmm. Molly's family, when she did go missing, quickly set up a website asking people for information on Molly's disappearance. And they were able to send out over 30,000 emails as well. Now, I don't know where they would have gotten these email addresses from. I have no idea where they they could collect that many emails to shoot out. Yeah, that 30,000 is a really large number. It's like sending you and me an email about a missing person. A sketch artist made a composite of a man that Maggie had made eye contact with, which took about nine hours to complete. And the reason it took so long is because after Maggie finished describing the suspect, she asked if the sketch artist could add him smoking a cigarette. Once that final detail was complete, Maggie positively identified this man as to whom she had seen the day before. Wow, just one little change, eh? And Yeah. The man in this composite is described as having brown hair, dark eyes, and he was somewhere in his 50s and a heavy smoker. Okay, imagine just a, a 50-year-old man sitting in a parking lot with his windows down, looking around, smoking heavily. Would you not call the police? I don't know. You could think he's waiting for somebody. Oh, that's true. All right, on June 9th of 2003... This is where Molly's story comes to an abrupt halt. Beth, remember that she was abducted in the year 2000. Yes. And for the next 20 years, Molly's case went cold. Mm -hmm. Police exhausted all efforts to find this mystery man, but simply could not produce enough evidence to charge anyone for her disappearance. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. On June 9th, 2003, Molly's remains were discovered in some woods in Whiskey Hill, approximately five miles or eight kilometers from Coman's Pond, along with the blue bathing suit that she was wearing the day she disappeared. Her cause of death has never been determined other than it's classified as being a homicide. They have no evidence of how she might have died. Mm, it's not good. Yeah. Well, as we go, Beth, you'll see the direction that her parents are really trying to push. As of June 16th now, we are going to fast forward again because just like when Molly first disappeared, police had no luck finding her killer once her remains were discovered in 2003. And of course, now we're at least 20 or more years into DNA identification. And science is so much more advanced today, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. That's too bad. I wish they had something. Yeah. So I, I sit here and wonder how this case could still be unsolved. 
Oh, yes, most definitely. It's too bad they didn't have some of those cigarette butts. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, Beth, that is such a good thought process. Well, you've heard me talk about familial DNA, which is where police investigate DNA from family members, right? Yes. In June 2016, authorities took 24 pieces of evidence from Molly's case and began running DNA tests. Hmm. I'm going to assume that the articles they tested were likely Molly's bathing suit and some of the items that she had left on the beach that day. That sounds logical. Well, I had no idea how long it would take to get DNA results back because about a year later, just in June of 2017, the DNA tests led police to a nearby campground where supposedly the white car was seen around the day that Molly had disappeared. Wait, you're saying that the same car all those years later? Yeah. What? Guess why they did not find that car? Apparently someone had buried it on the campground. That's weird. Right? Who buries a car? Police used ground-penetrating radar to locate a late-model white Buick LeSabre sedan. And long story short, police identified a suspect but were never able to collect enough evidence on him to press charges. Mm, That's not good. Well, I'm going to come back to that in just a couple minutes because there is a suspect list and it's pretty lengthy. And as I go through this list, Beth, I'm going to give you my personal opinion on some of the resemblances from the composite drawings because you know me. I like to paint a visual for you and our listeners. Mm -hmm. And we would love to hear what our listeners think. So be sure to give us some feedback when I post on our Instagram. So let's start with our suspect list. In 2007, a known sex offender by the name of Robert Burno attempted to abduct a jogger just a few miles outside of Warren, Massachusetts. Police feel that he matches the description of the composite drawing, and that's all I could really find on this suspect, Beth. But take note that Robert was arrested seven years after Molly's disappearance, and police just couldn't get enough evidence to charge him in this case. I hate when that happens. Well, I mean, if he's innocent, we certainly want to give him that respect, right? Yes. Rodney Stranger is the second suspect who lived close to the YMCA where Molly attended her lifeguard certification classes back in 2000. He drove a white car and matched the composite drawing. I mean, sort of, to me. He was a little bit too skinny, Beth. When you're looking at his mugshot, uh, he had white hair and that's opposite of what the composite drawing was. But if he did have dark hair at the time of Molly's disappearance, I can somewhat see the resemblance, but not enough to positively identify him. Mm -hmm. Rodney was known to hunt and fish in Warren, Massachusetts. He frequented the swimming area at Comans Park and liked to hang out in those woods behind the pond. Eventually, Rodney moved to Florida shortly after Molly's disappearance. I'm going to say, Beth, he was probably under a lot of pressure from that case in the media. For sure. And get this, in 2008, Rodney was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison for stabbing his girlfriend to death. What do you think of that? Oh, that's horrible. 
So he does have the capability of killing. Yeah, he does. Suspect number three is Gerald Battistoni. He was a convicted child rapist and resembled the composite, according to the police, and also frequented Coman's Pond. Okay, I saw the mugshot of Gerald and it shows that he's got blonde hair. So the hair to me was a little bit too light in comparison to that composite drawing. The sketch out there on the internet looks more like somebody who has an Italian or Greek features. You know how they have the dark hair and olive skin? Yes. That's what was in the composite drawing. But in this sense, Gerald to me does not look enough like the suspect. He, I mean, just basically looks like a creep. Hmm. Gerald is connected to another case in 1993 for a 10-year-old girl named Holly Perenin who disappeared on the way to her grandmother's house and get this, Beth, to see a new litter of puppies. Aww. Holly's remains were found two and a half months later in Brimwood, which was just about an hour away from Warren. And in 2011, Gerald was found guilty and sent to prison on four counts of rape that occurred back in the early 90s. Wow. He attempted suicide in 2011 after learning that he was added to the suspect list in Molly's murder and eventually died in November of 2014 without ever being charged in this case. Now, the last suspect is Francis Frank Sumner Sr. Frank's mugshot, to me, looks a lot like the composite drawing. He has that dark, slicked-back hair, like in the picture. But I'd certainly encourage you, Beth, and our listeners to go look at the suspect's photos and pretty much decide for yourself. I've made my decisions on this, but you all go decide for yourself. Frank owned a white sedan similar to the car that witnesses reported seeing the day that Molly disappeared. One witness came forward to tell the police that Frank had told them something bad had happened when he was in the woods, but he never would elaborate on what. During this conversation, the eyewitness noted that Frank had scratches on his face. That's horrible. That definitely sounds like he could be guilty if he's the one. He's at the top of the suspect list. Yeah, I, I would assume just from what I saw, it, he, the resemblance is there. And certainly the eyewitness accounts and scratches on his face. I mean, he, he would have a lot of explaining to do. Book him, Dano. <laughs> Police did investigate Frank pretty heavily over the years and discovered that he was a level two sex offender who was convicted of kidnapping and rape in 1981. Jeez. Yeah, I had to go look at this, Beth, because just to, again, give you and our listeners an indication, according to Massachusetts.gov, a level one sex offender would have a low risk of reoffending and pose a low threat to the public. Mm -hmm. Level two would be a moderate degree of reoffending and posing a danger to the public, while level three is a high risk in both of those categories. Frank was classified as a level two, a moderate risk. I wonder why it's only moderate. 
I know. I'd like to know how they classify these people, but I'm sure the experts have some kind of scale, whatever they use. Yeah. I'm not an expert here, but apparently Frank was never placed on the sex offender registry. So this was a critical piece of information that the police was not aware of during the early days of their investigation. Well, with his history, he certainly should be on the list. Oh, yeah. Somebody just overlooked it. And I don't know how that happens either. Well, Frank was paroled in 1998 and lived close to Warren during the time of Molly's disappearance. As I said, he resembled that composite drawing, but was found deceased in his home on May 4th, 2016, at the age of 71, without ever being charged in Molly's disappearance. Hmm. Remember, police found a white sedan in the campgrounds. Remember how I said that it had been buried? They found that car a year after Frank passed away. My gosh, a whole year. Yep, obviously they couldn't follow up on that. No. But last year, in 2021, all that DNA came to fruition because police once again began looking at Frank as the main suspect in this case after they took a DNA sample from his son, Frank Jr. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And guess where Frank was located at? Where? He was in an Ohio prison for aggravated robbery. Get out. Yeah. And I'm not sure how that familial DNA collection works, Beth, but did old Jr. willingly give it up? Or I would say they probably collected it from one of his own crime scenes where police were probably looking and collecting DNA evidence. Sure. Bad news though. Just this past summer, the DNA testing came back on Junior and it was not a match to his father. Really? Yeah. So again, they have more dead ends. They do. I hate dead ends. You know that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I wonder too, uh, with so much evidence and eyewitnesses in the case, plus DNA, I mean, how are they not able to close this case already? Exactly. This news obviously devastated the Bish family. They have expressed their disappointment and they remained hopeful after hearing that police are still following up with at least 100 new leads in 2022. Gee, that's a lot. I know. And for them to get that much information this year, that's phenomenal. It is. It's nice that the people are keeping the case on top. Oh, yeah. In 2021, the Bishes were very vocal with their support of the police. This was around the time that they began testing that familial DNA. Wonderful. Mm Mm-hmm. And the family acknowledged how authorities are doing everything they can to bring Molly's case to a close. And I agree with that because everything that I have found, Beth, shows that this case is still highly active. Great. However, this year, the family began expressing some frustration on how this case was handled back in the beginning days and weeks that Molly had disappeared. Heather Bish, who is Molly's sister, stated that the crime scene was never preserved the day that Molly disappeared. She also stated that police zoned in on Molly's boyfriend and seemed to be stuck on him a little bit too long. I could not find any articles on that. That was just coming straight from her recollections. Okay. And Heather feels that she and her family experience ongoing trauma 
And I quote, knowing that there are so many, many abusive men and they exist in our society and they're fixing our cars and they're delivering our mail and they're coaching our kids' soccer teams, unquote. Before Molly disappeared, Heather admits that she had a mindset that there was just one bad person going around doing bad things. I agree with that, Beth. We can talk about these cases all day long. We are not in that situation. And until we are, there's got to be just a disconnect in a certain extent. I mean, we've got listeners who listen to true crime as much as we do. But you have to admit, or at least I do, there is at least some level of disconnect until you are actually going through it. Yeah. Just two weeks ago, and I'm talking about two weeks ago in September of 2022, the Bish family asked authorities to assign new investigators to this case because they're beginning to lose faith in the district attorney's office. I agree with that somewhat because I think sometimes, Beth, especially in cold cases, fresh eyes sometimes uncover new information, don't you think? Oh, for sure. I totally agree with you. Heather Bish wrote a formal letter requesting that the case be moved from Worcester County to Hampton County because she feels that she can access more resources from trained professionals who can bring this case to a close. And that kind of goes back to the fresh eyes. Yes, I totally agree with that. The fresh eyes. And on the other hand, the flip side is these investigators are working so hard and keeping this case alive that it does seem to be a shame that the Bish family is starting to lose their confidence in the investigators. Yes, well said. Heather states that Worcester County officials do not have the technology, nor do they have what's needed to close the case. Let me give you an example. She's really pushing that DNA testing and is trying to bring in renowned DNA experts to help solve this case. So far, however, Heather is hitting a brick wall. I can imagine it's not going to be easy. And I understand her frustration because we all grieve in our own ways. But this type of grief to me is very unimaginable. Right. And I'll say, though, that in a public statement, the Worcester District Attorney's Office did say that they're still making headway in Molly's case. And while they're cognizant of keeping family members informed on any updates, they're still limited as to what information they can disclose to the victim's family members. And I I think that's fair. You can't tell family members absolutely everything. You have to keep things close to the chest, especially if the investigation is still open. Yeah. There's just too many what ifs. And I understand they have to keep information to themselves. And on the flip side of that, you know, giving the Bish family as much as they can. I think they're doing a decent job. In every interview that I looked at before I before we started recording today, Beth, you can tell that Molly's family just needs closure. Yes, I'm sure every family member feels the same way in cases like this. Mm-hmm. In one of the articles that I read, I discovered that Molly's sister earned a doctorate degree and is very willing to assist the police in their DNA research. I don't know what type of doctorate that she has, but they told her they can't give her access to the case file. And I get that. If I had the means and capacity, I personally would help with this case if I could. I would absolutely volunteer to help any way I can. You're a good soul. 
Oh, well, you are too, Beth. Now, Heather currently has a TikTok feed to keep this case alive. And I actually went to go look this up because I wanted to see what she is doing on TikTok. You can find her at Heather Bish. And when I looked this up, she is doing a really good job posting lots of stories about her sister just to keep the case alive. So go check that out if you have a chance. I'm going to do that right now. Well, not right now. We still have to finish recording. But do that after. Okay. <laughs> Molly's parents, John and Maggie, organized the Molly Bish Foundation and opened a Life Guard Center. And I say guard in quotes, which brings awareness to children and family safety and abductions through legislative reform. And the cool thing about this foundation is that they promote that familial DNA searches to assist law enforcement in their investigations. So that makes sense as to why they're really pushing the DNA. Mm-hmm, that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm going to add a link to our show notes for our listeners to visit the website. You'll find a six-minute video from several of Molly's family members who talk directly to whoever abducted Molly that day. And they also give some really beautiful stories about Molly. I highly encourage you all to go look at that. There is currently a bill actively filed on Molly Bish's behalf that would allow police to use familial DNA to expand their search in cold cases. However, this law is yet to be passed due to the questions regarding people's privacy. I understand that. It is under review with the U.S. Department of Public Safety and Homeland Safety Committees. As of today, Molly would be 39 years old. This case is still open and active with a $100,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest. So to our listeners, if you have any information about Molly's murder, you can contact the Massachusetts State Police tip line at 508-453-7575. And Beth, that is where we stand with the Molly Bish case today. Well, I'm really glad that this was brought to the limelight once again so that listeners may know more or hear something or rumors. Everything can be a tip. Absolutely. And nothing is too small. Even if you think it's the minute amount, and I feel like Heather may have said that in one of her interviews, even if it's just a small tidbit that you don't think is relevant, call it in. Yes. So, Deb, what's your teachable moment for today? Oh, this one was a hard one today, Beth. I think my takeaway from this case is that you have to stand up for what you believe in. It's obvious to me that the Bish family has a deep love for each other, and they will go to no ends to bring justice to Molly. When you feel passionate about something, Beth, you just need to speak up. People tend to talk the big talk sometimes and voice their opinions. We all know we have opinions, right? Oh, for sure. But when do they really take action? That's the big question. The Bish family is a perfect example of stepping up for what they believe in. And even if they don't see the changes that they want today, I can see it happening one day. I say Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither are laws. Sometimes when you're passionate about something and 
act on it, that speaks volumes over just words or just talking about it. So that's my teachable moment. Great. You always have excellent teachable moments for us. And I like how they're always relevant to the cases that we're talking about. Yeah, I've been doing this for a little while, Beth. We're, we're on episode 36, so I think we got our groove. <laughs> I think we do. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap. Thanks for listening to Dying to be Found. Before we go, we'd love for you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest at Dying to be Found. If you like our episodes, please tell your friends and consider buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash dying to be found, spelled just like you see it on our logo. Feel free to leave a comment on the page so we know what we can do better. If you have an idea for a story that you would like for us to cover, please visit our website at dyingtobefound.com spelled just like you see it on our logo or email us at dyingtobefound.com. With that, be sure to check in every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.